I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, January 30th. I'm Michael Guidry in for Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the Jackson Municipal Airport Authority is requesting lawmakers provide funding to make infrastructure repairs. Then tax cuts are on the docket this legislative session and could have a major effect on Mississippi's future. But is income tax the best option? Experts say that's not likely. Plus, a host for NPR tells her story about how attending an historically black college and university helped guide the lives of many black Americans. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The largest airport in Mississippi is calling on the state legislature to invest millions for infrastructure repairs. That's as the Jackson Municipal Airport Authority is in court about who will control the site long term. They're seeking $2.4 million to help replace 60-year-old elevators, malfunctioning escalators, and a new HVAC system. During a meeting with the Hines County Senate delegation yesterday, JMAA representatives covered the multitude of problems their building faces. Rika Lewis-Payton is one of the commissioners for the airport. She says the funding they are requesting from the legislature, combined with the funding from the federal government, could help the airport significantly during what is expected to be one of their busiest years. The airport is 60 years old, and so within the original building. So with that, you have all of the challenges associated with that, as well as if you don't get those general maintenance kinds of things done, on a recurring basis, it's going to start hitting the expected lifespan. But we've been busy uh, going back and forth with uh, Washington trying to get uh, the, the federal dollars that are needed for the investment in the airport. During that meeting, Democratic Senator David Blunt of Jackson said the legislature will have $40 million of American Rescue Plan Act funds to spend this session. He says some of those funds could be used to fund airport repairs. And Democratic Senator John Horn of Jackson says the state should help maintain the airport regardless of the ongoing litigation. He speaks with our Will Stribling. Yeah, well, it's a reasonable request uh, that they're asking for, and uh, the airport staff, the uh, members of the commission have been doing a a really good job trying to to do the things that they can do that they do have control of. And uh, I I think regardless of who actually will ultimately control the airport, there are some things the state of Mississippi needs to be doing in order to to, uh, deal with the upkeep and maintenance of the facility. 
And it was, it was mentioned that there were $40 million of uncommitted ARPA funds that could potentially be used to, to, for these Im- improvement matches. Do you expect there to be any difficulty getting some, a request like, like that through the, through the legislature? Like, are there going to be a lot of different competing, you know, projects for that, for that unallotted ARPA money? Well, the fact of the matter is that Mississippi is a poor state, and there's a lot of d- demand for the limited resources that we, we, we have here. So, yeah, it, it'll be tough to, for the airport to, to get a piece of that, that, that money. Uh, but I'm optimistic that uh, we can justify uh, putting some money in, into it as a state. Uh, it's just the largest airport. It, it um, exceeds uh, traffic in in terms of uh, other airports around the state by more than a half million. Uh, So we have 1.3 million people who come through that airport every year. It's our front door. Uh, We we have world-class companies that are coming here, and they don't need to be coming to a ratty airport. And uh, mentioned the, you know, who ultimately controls the airport. This, you know, we're coming up on eight years since that that bill was signed. And this, um, you know, control over the, the the airport board is still being battled out in court. Just any thoughts on that? And just how drawn out this process has been? Well, my understanding is that um, in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, uh, <laughs> there is not a, a resolution on that case, and that's been going on for maybe about 20 years. So these things take time. Uh, we, we, As a delegation, we risk these things take time, but as a delegation, we're hopeful that uh, we can get past it and, and uh, be about the business of putting together a first-class airport. That's Democratic Senator John Horn of Jackson. Coming up, tax cuts are on the docket this year and could have a major effect on Mississippi's future, but is income tax the best option? Experts say that's not likely. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. From children's education to gripping drama, documentaries to comedy, MPB Television brings the world to Mississippi. With local stories, cooking, health, and music, MPB Television takes Mississippi to the world. We try to make it easy for you to listen to MPB Think Radio with all the useful information you hear on our local programs, including car repair, your health, personal finance, technology, and more. You can listen on the radio in your car or at home, using your smart speaker or smartphone, or listening online. And coming soon, an exciting new way to access our local programs. MPB Think Radio, helping you lead a better life. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Michael Guidry. A new report from the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities finds that that cutting taxes could diminish states' abilities to fund essential programs during a time where budgets are artificially inflated. The nonprofit organization based in Washington, D.C., finds many states across the nation are primed to cut income taxes this year, including Mississippi. Governor Tate Reeves has already called on the legislature to eliminate income tax this session. That's after the state set in motion the elimination of the 4% tax bracket in 20. 2022. Reeves points to states like Florida, Texas, and Tennessee, which don't have income taxes as the reason those states have a competitive advantage over Mississippi for economic growth. Our Kobe Vance speaks with Wesley Tharp, Senior Advisor for State Tax Policy at the CBPP. He says states without income taxes have vastly different tax structures to make up for losses in revenue. The main reason why 
states should not be uh, looking at places that don't have personal income taxes altogether is that those states have one of two things. They either have really unique attributes like uh, Florida's beaches and tourism industry, which you know you can't replicate in, in almost any state. Uh, Nevada, where you have the, the unique gaming industry uh, that they, they really, really over rely on to fund their public services. Texas is another good example uh, where um, abundant natural resources, oil and gas provides a really huge share of how they, they fund schools and the wide range of things that um, state, state and local governments provide. That's one thing. The second thing is other states may not have those unique attributes, but in order to not have income taxes, they massively over-rely on more regressive sources of revenue. So Tennessee in particular is a good example here uh, because Tennessee has the highest combined state and local sales tax in the country. And the sales taxes of all taxes falls most sharply on those uh, trying to make ends meet and trying to climb the economic ladder, those lower and moderate income families. Lastly, um, there's a couple of other examples. Um, New Hampshire is really a clear one of a state that doesn't have income taxes, but property taxes are, are really the primary driver there, um, really um, a disproportionate share of revenue. Property taxes are also exceptionally high in Texas. Um, that is one reason why you know, states that, without, that don't have income taxes are often lifted up as being quote unquote low tax states. Um, we've all heard that, you know, people moving from California to Texas or to Tennessee um, or Florida because they're quote low tax. In reality, those states are some of the higher, highest taxing states for those at the lower end of the economic ladder because they're getting absolutely hammered by sales taxes, property taxes, and a lot of, in some cases, just nickel and dime fees, things like the astronomical tolls they have in Florida being a good example there. That brings me to something that uh, lawmakers are also considering this year, and that's cutting uh, the state grocery tax. We've seen members of the Senate, specifically Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman, have expressed interest in eliminating the grocery tax. Uh, do you see that as something that would be productive compared to income tax reductions? Absolutely. So states working to, in some cases, eliminate or at least reduce significantly their grocery tax is an effective way to provide targeted relief um, to those who, who really uh, need that help more so than those who are getting a windfall from cutting uh, personal or corporate income taxes. One important caveat here, if you will, um, is in a lot of states, you know, sales taxes on groceries do bring in a reasonable, reasonable amount of revenue. And so, you know, cutting that tax also would carry a cost, um, but it's much more modest um, than, again, these big, broad-based cuts to personal income tax rates. Uh, and there are ways, there are a lot of options available uh, for state lawmakers um, to look at keeping that cost manageable and potentially offsetting it with some other sound source of revenue. If Mississippi continues down this road of eliminating the state income tax, what do you think that means for the state's future? Eliminating Mississippi's income tax would be a massive setback for the state's future trajectory. Mississippi is not unique in this regard. Like a lot of states, there has been historic underinvestment you know, in schools and infrastructure, things like water quality, um, roads, you know, being able to afford pre-K, being able to afford community college. You know, young people being able to get skills they need to thrive in the workforce, 
parents needing to be able to put food on the table and find an affordable place to live. Taxes, as I said earlier, are they do matter to states. Um, you know, they matter to individuals, they matter to companies, um, but they're part of a broad swath of things that are, are just like really crucial to a state's success. And so if Mississippi were going to go down that road, the bottom line end result is it would have a much less fair tax system that was hugely over-reliant on regressive sales taxes, property taxes and fees, and there simply would not be enough money coming in to fund the sorts of public services and investments that Mississippi's people and communities need. Um, as I said, you know, Mississippi is perhaps a distinctive case of a state where there's historic underinvestment. Um, but, you know, I'm a born and raised Georgian, and I've seen, you know, up front the results of when a state, you know, just does not adequately invest in its people. Um, you know, there's not enough economic opportunity, there's racial and ethnic inequities. Um, there's not enough, you know, just like ladders to, for people to climb and succeed over time. What's really important is for uh, Mississippi voters and policymakers to, to kind of take a wide lens and understand that, sure, you do want a competitive tax system, but it needs to bring in enough resources to support what people need, uh, and it needs to be fairly structured um, so that those who are most able to pay are contributing a fair share uh, and that and where the system does not fall disproportionately sharply on those least able to pay. Wesley Tharp is Senior Advisor for State Tax Policy at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. Coming up, a host for NPR tells her story about how attending an historically black college and university has changed the lives of many black Americans. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. There's useful information for you on MPB Think Radio's local programming this morning. Personal finance is the focus on Money Talks at 9. At 10, there are discussions of your legal rights on in legal terms. Relatively Speaking has advice on maintaining good relationships with friends and family at 11. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Michael Guidry. A new book comes out today that shares the stories of several famous alumni and up-and-comers about their time at historically black colleges and universities. Contributors include Oprah Winfrey, Stacey Abrams, and Branford Marsalis. Aisha Roscoe is a Sunday host for Weekend Edition on NPR and the author of the new book, HBCU Made, a celebration of the black college experience. That book comes out today. Roscoe shares with our Desiree Frazier why she wanted to highlight the role an HBCU can play in so many lives. This book is a collection of essays from HBCU graduates, and really I I like to look at it as a testament of the, the impact and the value that HBCUs have had on the world and continue to have. And we have essays from people like Oprah Winfrey, Roy Wood Jr., Branford Marsalis, Stacey Abrams, and more, April Ryan. So we are, you know, so that we have been able to uh, pull together uh, a very prestigious and, and, and select group of people to tell their stories um, and to talk about how HBCUs have shaped their lives. How has it shaped your life? 
Oh, yeah. I, I'm a graduate of Howard University, the Mecca, the real HU, according to me. <laughs> oh, shoot. Um, I guess you might get some <laughs> blowback from that from others. From Hampton, yeah. But, you know, that's this is the way we feel. But, I, you know, going to Howard uh, really, you know, set the course of my life. I was a very shy, introverted a girl from Durham, North Carolina, and I get to Howard, and I it really gave me a space to grow and to develop um, as a person, and to really develop my voice. And I and you know I would say it didn't happen overnight, but I feel like the seeds were planted to really allow me to um, be able to be the person you see now and to stand in my authority. Um, and, you know, going to Howard, I learned how to, like, always be prepared to come correct, uh, to make sure that I, I knew what I was talking about because, you know, you'll get called out. <laughs> and so you have to make sure that you are ready and that, um, you know, that you that you are doing your best at all times. And that's really what I got from Howard. Well, now you work for NPR, but in the past, you have been a White House correspondent. You covered presidential administrations, uh, President Trump's 2019 summit with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. And you have a background that is enviable. Why write about an HBCU experience at this point in your life? Oh, well, well, thank you for that. Um, You know, I think because I feel like uh, so much of my story got its start at an HBCU. Like, my first job, the job that I was at for 10 years where, you know, I um, first started reporting on the White House, I got that job because uh, I took a class at Howard University um, with Reuters, and they had a Reuters business book reporting class, and they partnered with Howard. And that's how I got familiar with Reuters, and Reuters got familiar with me. And that's how I got that job, you know. Um, and, and that <laughs> has had a huge impact on my life. Like, I feel like, you know, what I learned from my professors and, 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 and deans, like, I feel like they poured so much into me that at this moment, I just wanted to give just a little bit back of what I received from Howard, which was really something that, you know, is it's priceless. Um, and so I just wanted to give a little bit back because I know how much, you know, going to Howard meant to me. Of all of the testimonials you have, which are over 10, probably a dozen or so, was there anyone that really stood out to you? Well, I mean, they, they all stand out in their own ways. Obviously, you know, if you get Oprah Winfrey in your book, you want to do that. You know, she tells a story um, about how when she went to Tennessee State, um, she had a professor who was really tough, um, but she had gotten a call for what would be her first, like, TV job, and she was like, oh, my dad's not going to let me do this. And it was her professor at Tennessee State who said, you know, come on, child, this is why you go to school to get, <laughs> to get a job like this, and who actually convinced her father to let her get her first um, TV job, and obviously the rest is history. Um, so that stood out to me. Um, Roy Wood Jr. has a very, the comedian, he has an, you know, an amazing story of how he got in trouble while he was at FAMU uh, with the law, and, he, and it was FAMU that gave him a second chance. 
Um, so, so many stories. And, you know, some stories from people who you may not know, maybe not as big a name, but, you know, we have one person who lived through Hurricane Katrina at Dillard University, um, and that school was completely flooded. And, and she talks about how, like, HBCUs, not just the one she went to, but so many, like, really came together at that time and, 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 and what that meant, um, you know, for uh, a school that went through a tragedy. Um, so, I, you know, I think there's a lot of stories that really stood out to me. Mississippi has historically black colleges and universities, a number of them, Jackson State, Delta State, Mississippi Valley State, Tougaloo, Alcorn, Russ. And have you been to Mississippi? Have you visited any of these campuses? So I have not, but I would love to. I would love to come. Come on down. Now, after they hear this, they're going to be like, when you come in. Yeah, so they just give me the invitation and I will be there. I, you know, I would love to come down to Mississippi. My aunt is from Mississippi, so I'm sure she would be so proud. She's a Jackson girl. She would love to have me come down to her home state. I would love to come down to Mississippi. There have been questions raised. Why have historically black colleges now when schools have been integrated? Mm, that's a great that's a great question. And, you know, April Ryan, um, the, the White House correspondent, she's the longest serving um, a black woman to to be a White House correspondent. Um, and she talks about how you know, people would bring up these ideas like, well, what is the point of an HBCU in this day and age? But when you look at it and when you look at these stories, I think that this this book answers the question because you see how uh, HBCUs offer a safe haven for black students, for talented black students, where they can really focus on developing their talents, their intellect, what 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 they want to do, figuring out what they want to do with with their lives, without having to deal with necessarily stereotypes, uh, you know, the the, the white gaze, racism, um, and you know, you have people in the book who talk about how they did maybe an HBCU for undergrad, and then they go to graduate school at a predominantly white institution, and they talk about being questioned just to, you know as if they didn't deserve to be there or as if their intellect um, wasn't up to par. And they say they didn't deal with that at an HBCU. They were questioned, they were challenged, but it wasn't their basic humanity being questioned. And so, and I always say, like, this book isn't putting down predominantly white institutions. What we to do is highlight the very important role that HBCUs play in society and to point out that they are worthy of celebration and worthy of support. And quickly, the federal government has found that HBCUs nationwide underfunded by $12 billion for land-grant institutions. Mississippi hasn't gotten $250 million. Your thoughts on that? Well, uh, quickly, I think that shows how HBCUs have always had to do more with less and how this country has intentionally um, made sure that they did not get the funding that they deserved. And I think that that should be rectified. Like, they deserve the support um, and because of what they've been able to do with what they have. But they can't continue to do and to produce people like Oprah Winfrey and Branford Marsalis and et cetera without the support. And that takes money. Aisha Wasco host of Weekend Edition Sunday on NPR. Thank you so much for speaking with us about this new book. 
Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.